Jesus is praying here in front of his disciples. We said that last week. His uh, men have been with him on an incredible three-year journey of ministry. They've seen it all. They've been surprised. They've been disappointed. They've been aghast at what their Lord and Rabbi has said and done. Um, and they feel the full weight of everything in their community coming down upon their heads on this very night. Jesus has intimated that the end is near. He's about to give his life. Uh, we know that he will be arrested. He will be tried in various and sundry ways. And eventually, he will be nailed to a cross. And he will give his life. At this point, though, his disciples are just watching him. And he's giving his farewell soliloquy in the Gospel of John from chapter 13 all the way up to chapter 17. And after this time of being together in the upper room, it says that Jesus prayed. And we don't know specifically when and where in the happenings of that night. We just know that it precedes the prayer of Gethsemane, where the famous words are uttered, Father, not my will, but your will be done. You know, but he's anticipating with great uh, anguish the pain and the sacrifice that must be made. All of that is missing from this prayer. This prayer is his farewell prayer. It's a prayer that is given for others. Ione and I were at a retreat some years ago, early in my ministry years, and we were still in a church in Nebraska. And we were having a particularly difficult time. Uh, life was not easy. We had all three of our girls, but this church was a poor church. Uh, it was a poor community. It wasn't like they were uh, not taking care of our needs or at least attempting to, but you know, every month we had to have a minor miracle happen financially in order to make it through. And I was beginning to feel the wear and tear of years of such treatment. I'm we moved here, it was the first time our girls got to go see an eye doctor, the first time our girls got to go see, get a physical, uh, we got to start replacing clothes, you know, all these things that happen when God does bring forth his blessing. But at this moment, I was at the bottom of that nadir, that, that rut that we felt like we were in. And we were at a conference for youth pastors and we were talking about uh, how to disciple and my good friend, um, a guy that I had known for years, was the teacher in this particular conference. And for whatever reason, he started going around to the tables. It was a small group of people, probably no more than about 50 of us there. But he came over to the table where Ione and I were sitting, and he just said, in front of everyone, can I pray for you guys? Wow. Um, to this day, the power of that prayer sits in my heart and he specifically without me telling him anything prayed that god's financial blessings would come upon us as only a person who's also experienced such shortcomings can pray and it just filled our hearts with thankfulness thankfulness for good friends but thankfulness for prayer we felt like this man had opened a door into the presence of god for us that we, beyond our own efforts and strengths in prayer, were being ushered into that throne room. And there, in the presence of God, our needs were being put before him, before the king. And that king was predisposed to answer that prayer. 
Now, I'm not, I can't stand here and say that we went home and we won publisher sweepstake or something like that. I can tell you, though, that it was a sustaining prayer. I was able to go home and face the mountain of bills that we had and the needs that our kids had and feel totally different about them. I felt like I wasn't alone. I felt like Jesus was with me. I felt like the church understood us better. It was a great time. Have you felt prayer like that? Has someone come alongside of you when you were in need? Perhaps you were sick. Perhaps someone that you cared about had been hurt. Whatever the situation, prayer does an amazing thing for us. It, like I said, ushers us into the presence of God. The disciples are watching Jesus in chapter 17 of the Gospel of John. Of course, the chapter divisions weren't there originally when John wrote this, but that's what's in play here. God himself is opening the door so that these disciples are being brought into the presence of God. It's a purposeful prayer. Jesus wants them to hear how he prays normally so that they will learn to do the same thing. And we see things in here in this uh, short little section, this high priestly prayer, that are indicative that this was a common form of prayer for people in Jewish culture. Notice the first verse. When Jesus had spoken, spoken these words, well, what words? The words that are just recorded in chapter 16 and 15 and so forth. When he had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. That's common. The Jewish people believed that physical actions should accompany prayer. They raised their hands. They looked at the heavens. They spoke in a loud voice. They wanted to be heard. They wanted others to see their posture of prayer. It was important to them. Uh, in one of the parables that Jesus tells about the tax collector, by contrast, that tax collector says that he would not, he could not, in Luke chapter 18, lift his eyes to heaven. He was so ashamed of the role that he had played in hurting his fellow countrymen by collecting taxes for the odious Romans that he couldn't, didn't feel worthy to come before the heavenly Father. Sometimes we feel that way, don't we? But in this case, Jesus is coming confidently before the Father. He lifts his eyes up to the heavens. Probably had his hands up as well. This was a very public form of address. And we know as we look through here that he's going to make intercession for his disciples. He's going to pray not only for them so that they can learn to pray, but he's also praying about them, taking them to his heavenly Father. And in the end section of this prayer, he's actually praying for the future church as well. This is going to be Jesus' role for all eternity. According to Romans 8, verse 34, it says that Jesus will make intercession before the Father. That's repeated in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. This is what he does. Let me, if I can, just uh, read one of those for you. I'll read Hebrews passage, verse 25. It says, if I can find it. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's what Jesus is about. He prays for us. He doesn't just set the example. He is doing the actual thing. He is praying for his men. 
This is so important. The other thing that we notice about prayer in Scripture is that uh, rabbis, priests, prophets, people who are important, often at the end of their life or their time of service, give a sort of a final oratory. They give us an instruction. They have a speech before their people. We see this pattern begun with the man Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Uh, in 32.3, he starts praying just like Jesus does. He glorifies his father. And by the time Moses is done with that prayer and gets to verse, or chapter 33, he's instructing his people that this is the relationship I have with the father and I want you to have it as well. So this becomes the pattern for prayer. Uh, this is so clear. In this chapter 17, this prayer that we're looking at this morning, you see there's three main divisions of prayer. Now, you might be asking yourself and saying, well, these seem like very precise words. John doesn't seem to be guessing this is what Jesus said, even though we know he didn't write this down until years, decades after the event. Uh, John was probably living in Ephesus at the time when he wrote this. He was a much older man. So how could he possibly remember all the words that Jesus prayed? Well, there's a lot of the memory devices that are happening in this prayer. As we look at those three sections that I just mentioned, we see some re repetitive uh, usages uh, that allow someone who's trying to remember it to grasp it and keep it in their hearts. This is the way that much, much of the Gospels were written. Uh, there are little things that tip us off to how we should think about them and how we should keep them back in our hearts. These guys that heard this, now maybe John was there and writing these actually down, these words, but more than likely, he's just hearing it. And we know from Mark chapter 14, when it says they left the upper room that night, went out singing after, uh, went out praising God after singing a hymn. Possibly, this is the hymn he's referring to. There is evidence that this chapter 17, this prayer was used as a worship device something that the early church would often recite and pray. Now, what do I mean by repetitive devices within this? Well, like I said, there's three sections to this prayer. There's the prayer that starts it off with this interaction between Jesus and his heavenly Father. He's praying to God about their relationship. Secondly, there's a section of prayer just specifically for his disciples, the men that he's been with for the last three years. And then thirdly, there's a section of prayer that's just focusing on the church. And within each of those sections, you see a pattern emerge. And I'll just give you some examples. Within each section, there's a part that begins that says, Jesus is asking prayer for whom? So if we look at verse 1, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh. So he's praying about his relationship with the Father. If you look at verse 9, you'll see the same thing is repeated for this section. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, so forth. If you look at verse 20, you'll see the third section. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe. So if you're memorizing through this, you can say, well, there's three distinct sections. Jesus is praying for three different groups. There's the theme of glory, which we see all through verses 1 through 5. Glory is mentioned five different times, but we also see it repeated in verse 10. Uh, when we get to that, 
I should bring my larger print Bible one of these mornings. <laughs> All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Verse 22, the third section of the prayer, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. Uh, there's an address to the Father in each section, verses 5, 11, and again in 21. Each mentions the followers given to Jesus by the Father. And then lastly, each has the theme of Jesus' revelation of the Father to his followers. And you can see this by the use of words like your name. So if you look in verse 6, it says, uh, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave to me. If you look in verse 14, you see at this time it's your word. And in verse 26, there's the repetition again of your name. So as you look through this, this is a very structured prayer. This is not something that he's just kind of, you know, pre praying on a wing. He wants this to be used in an instructional way. He's saying, hey, this is so important. I want you to memorize this prayer. I want you to have it as easy recall when you're praying so that you can pray just like this. So when John records this prayer, it's not as difficult a job as you might think. I don't know about you, sometimes I watch a, you know, like a, a show on TV or a movie that Hollywood has produced, a biopic especially, and you're watching them put words in the mouth of the historical character and you're thinking, how can they do that? That's insane. There's no way that they would know those words. And you get so caught up in it, you don't even think about it. You think, well, that must have been what Marshall Wyatt Earp said back in Tombstone, right? Well, not necessarily. That's what some you know, Hollywood writer thought would be a good thing for him to say at this point in his life. But we really have no idea what he said. Uh, you know, just for the point of effect, Earp was not a known as a writer. He didn't have a lot of things he left behind for us to know about. Uh, Jesus, not so much the case. Uh, he did give us some things to think about. And in the Gospels, we have his authentic words. And in chapter 17, we specifically have his authentic prayer. This is the words of the prayer that Jesus prayed. And because they can be so easily partitioned and understood in structure, we know that it was designed for the disciples to not only hear, but to memorize and then to later speak to those that were going to come after the time of Christ. This is an instructional prayer. It's not just about Jesus' relationship with his Father and, oh, we're getting an insight into his uh, excellent intimacy with God the Father. It's like, no, I want you to have the same intimacy. I want you to pray in the same manner. He had already taught his disciples, as we mentioned last week, how to pray. As we get to the Lord's Prayer at the end of our service today, will be saying those words again. But that's an instructional prayer. This is a prayer that is for disciple makers. I'll just bluntly say that. If you're not making disciples, you're probably not going to pray this prayer because that's really the focus on this prayer. It's about God praying about the people that have been entrusted to him, his disciples, the future disciples. It's an important, important thing. We have to be in prayer. So it's very important. So let's, take, let's get back into the text. He says, Father, the hour has come. What's the hour? Well, the hour of the end of his time. 
He's been ministering for three years. Uh, he's had these men with him for at least that long. So the hour has come when it's coming to an end. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. What does glory mean? It's the same Greek word used like five times in this first paragraph. It just means to venerate, to worship, to lift up for special usage. And it seems weird to say that I've been glorified, you've been glorified, but that's the, the uh, interesting part of the relationship of the father and the son. They have that kind of uh, intimacy with one another. And I think Jesus is implying that we should have that same intimacy, not only with God the Father, but with one another. We have each other's backs, in a sense. Be glorified in me as I am glorified in you. And then Jesus goes on to say, you've given me authority over all flesh to do what? Uh, Jamie was talking about purpose statements in our Sunday school class last hour. But it's a purpose statement of what? What has he given them authority for? To give eternal life to all. Now, John uses the concept of eternal life like the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, use the concept kingdom of heaven. To John, the idea of eternal life is the important central theological point of Jesus' life and teaching. You should know what eternal life is. It's the absence of death. You no longer have to fear being separated from your loved ones, but especially from God. Now, eternal life for John does not start at the point of death. John obviously uses this from chapter 3 all the way through chapter 17 with the concept of starting now. Once you're converted, while still in this life, you have entered into eternal life. That's not your only resting place. It doesn't have to be about death. It's about how I'm living now. So he's saying, Father, you've given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all, what? Here is the limiter, to whom you have given him. Jesus has waited for the Father to give him authority over the people that are following him, those that are responding in a positive way to the message of eternal life. Nicodemus is coming to Jesus in the middle of the night, back in chapter 3. What do I have to do to get eternal life? You have to be born again. Eternal life began as soon as Nicodemus gave his life and heart to his Savior. So it does for us. And then Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's our proof. That begins as soon as we know God. And the word know here doesn't just mean an intellectual knowledge. It means an experiential and intellectual knowledge. We have to live like what we believe. As soon as you know this true God, in Jesus Christ, his Son, then you have eternal life. John's whole point of this prayer is, I want you so much to have eternal life. I want these men that are listening right now, he's very aware of that. I want them to have eternal life. And the reason I know I can give it to them is because the Father has given them to me. It's a point of succession. Father to the Son to the disciples. And they will have eternal life because I have that authority. 
Just like Jesus had the authority to create the world as a creator, even though we often look at God the Father as being the creator, Jesus himself is also the creator. He creates in submission to his Father, so he wins souls in submission to his Father. We who walk with Christ have been given to him by the Father. It goes back to John 3.16, again, back on that idea of eternal life, right? Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave us his son. That's the giving of the people to his son. I glorified you, verse 4, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, I think there's a little bit of a future aspect as to what that work is. I think that also would include the walk to the cross, the dying on the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, and so forth. But as far as his disciples were concerned, to accomplish the work probably meant that he had accomplished the job of discipling these men. I have done this. I've done everything that you've asked of me. And because I have done this, I have completed your work. There was a mission that Christ is on. There's a mission that Christ is on. It started when he was brought to this world in the incarnation. It continued to the moment he announced his ministry life at the baptism with John the Baptist, and then the uh, following test of wills, if you will, in the wilderness, and has continued for three years. And he says, now I've accomplished that work. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I have I had with you before the world existed. We talked about last week how there was a perfect community, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they've been together for all eternity. And somewhere in there, they made the decision that the Son would break that community and come to this world in the form of a man and that he would give his life as a ransom for many. This is the work that Jesus did. These first five verses of this prayer that we're accomplishing today really have a couple of things in in their focus, but mainly that there was a mission. Jesus had a purpose. He wasn't just here to spread the good news as if, well, you can take it or you can leave it. He was here that he wanted us to understand that his whole thing was to come and to die for us. The disciples got this wrong all the time, didn't they? As you read through the Gospels, you realize that they keep asking questions. They keep insisting on having their own way, as if, Jesus, you didn't just come to die for us, you came to overthrow the political authorities. Jesus, you didn't just come to die for us, you came to lift me up in particular into position of authority and recognition. Jesus had to keep saying to them, no, no, I've come to do one will, not my will, not your will, but the Father's will. That's the whole point of this prayer. And as he starts it off, this prologue to this prayer, he is focused on that. Well, what do we do with this? What's our application for this morning? I think that what we have to get out of this is that we have to recognize that we also have a great commission, don't we? And I'm not just referencing Matthew 28, 18 through 20 or Acts 1, 8, where we're instructed to go out and make disciples of all the nations. We have to do that. But there are times when the Lord is telling us, I have a pathway for you that's just yours. I have a God-ordained mission. Do you know what your mission is this morning? Do you know what God would have for you to do? Sometimes we think, well, it's just pastors and missionaries, people like that. 
they have a calling from God. I've asked, been asked many, many times by people, how do you know that you've been called to go into ministry? Or how do you know that you've been called to go onto a certain mission field? Well, that's a great question, but let me flip the question right back at you. How do you know that you've been called to do what you do? What's your mission? It may be short-term, it may be long-term. Sometimes we get into a specific calling that we feel like God is saying to us, well, I want you to minister to these people at this particular place and time. But it may not last your whole life. Some of us may do things like volunteer or teach at Faith Academy. Um, we may have specific jobs that we feel like we have to do. But all of us, whether it's short-term or long-term, we have a calling. In the completion of that mission, God is glorified. Now, it has to be something that is outside of our regular everyday life. Sometimes we get, I hear people say, well, you know, God has gifted me to do this and this, and I just feel this is just a natural way for me to live. Well, the calling I'm talking about is something that's above and beyond, something that doesn't come naturally. We know that we have to exercise the gifts that God's given us in order to do them. God has not called us to live a life just like our neighbors who don't know the Lord. We're not called to get a good job and have a great education and make sure that you know, uh, we have a great marriage and then eventually retire and live our life and you know, just having a fun time. That's not the calling that God has for you. As the disciples are watching Jesus pray, they're listening very intently. What's going to be our calling now? They had to wait, according to the book of Acts, until they are gathered again and the Holy Spirit descends upon them. But it's no mistake that each one of those apostles headed off to different parts of the world. Each one of them had a calling from the Father. Who's reaching your neighborhood today? Who's calling on your neighbors? Do you have a, a mission from God for that? You know, th this kind of a calling, it can cause hardship. It can be a sacrifice. It definitely needs training. Maybe, perhaps, in some cases, it will even call on your life. I had a good friend, Bob, and we were young men in, in college, and he came to me one day and said, guess what? God has called me to open up a Volkswagen repair shop in the basement of my house. And I just kind of looked at him like some of you are probably thinking right now, like, you know, God doesn't call us to do that. That's crazy. And I couldn't convince him. He continued with that plan. Eventually, he tore an entire Volkswagen bug apart, took it down into his basement, and put it all back together. And he was so proud of it when I got down there, and he wanted me to see it. And so when I looked at it, I said, this is your calling from God? And he goes, I think it is. But about a year later, when I ran into him and I asked him, I said, so how did that go? How was that calling? And his response to me was, well, I don't think I got that right. I've done nothing but lose money. No one wants me to repair their Volkswagens. I think God got it wrong. No, God didn't get it wrong. We don't hear very well at times. We don't want to do what he's actually calling us to do. But God never gets it wrong. We have to listen. It means that we have to be paying attention through his word, the Spirit has to speak to us, and it has to be within 
what he has laid out for the life mission of all of us. It is something that is just going to be a life-changing event. Our goal is to hear well and understand that we can be faithful and obedient to that calling. It brings us right back to the parable of the talents. Well done, my good and faithful servant. I don't know if a lot of us give much thought to that, that moment when we'll see Jesus. I don't know about you, but it's very uh, easy for me to think of Jesus greeting me after I pass from this life and just hugging me. Welcome, so good to see you. But I very rarely get to that next question that he may very well ask each one of us. What did you do with the mission I laid on your heart? How did you handle those talents I gave you? I want to be able to say I did the best I could, Christ. I did everything that I could. I didn't want ever, ever to have you say to me, you did a lousy job. But Jesus says in that parable of the talents, the words are, well done, my good and faithful servant. That should be our goal. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I do pray that it is the best that we can do to respond to the mission that you've given us. It is our hope, Lord, that whatever we do, we will not fall into the trap of just living life without thought, without effort. I know there are so many in this room that have responded to that calling in a specific and unique way. I pray, Lord, that all of us will indeed listen if we haven't found it, obey if we have, repent if we've ignored it, and move on, Father, to walking in your way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.